to start with a question this morning. Um, obviously, don't answer out loud, but I want us to think about it in our minds. Uh, why is gratitude important? I mean, typically, we only really think about gratitude around Thanksgiving time, when the holiday calls for us to be thankful, and that's kind of the one time of year where we really want to focus on gratitude, and, and there's nothing wrong with focusing on it at that period of time. I think that's a great and a healthy thing to do. And to some degree, we know that we're supposed to be grateful all year round, and that we shouldn't be ungrateful, uh, but if we're to be honest with ourselves and with each other, I think all of us could say, you know, I'm a little too comfortable with my own ingratitude. I know I'm supposed to be thankful, but man, life is hard, and we're, we're kind of okay with living with this low-grade ingratitude in our lives. You don't need to turn there, but I want us to consider together 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. Uh, Paul says this, but, I, but know this, hard times will come in the last days. How many of you raise your hand and say, yes, I can relate to that part of the verse? He goes on to say, hard times will come in the last days, for people will be lovers of selves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, <clears throat> children, um, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having, holding to a form of godliness but denying its power. He says, avoid these people. I mean, that's an intense list, isn't it? We read that list and we think, yes, definitely want to avoid those people. Brutal, traitors, lovers of selves, demeaning. Yeah, let's, let's avoid them. But right smack dab in the middle of that list, he puts ungrateful. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that list, I don't really, I, I struggle with, man, does ingratitude really belong on that list? I mean, these are some horrendous sins. I don't know that ingratitude really fits, and yet right there it is, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The word ungrateful simply means to be unappreciative, to not display gratitude, not giving due return or recompense for benefits conferred. And when we live with ingratitude, really what we're doing is, ingratitude is a refusal to surrender to or to be happy, to be grateful for the life that God has chosen for us. Ingratitude is not valuing the blessings God has given us. Ingratitude reveals misplaced priorities. And when we aren't grateful for what God has given to us, we very quickly begin thinking that we're owed more. I mean, as humans, we pride ourselves on our self-sufficiency, don't we? We pride ourselves in what we can accomplish. We pride ourselves in our own glory. And when we have this overinflated view of ourselves, we begin to think that we're the source of all that's good in our lives. And we forget that it's really God blessing us infinitely beyond what we deserve. And gratitude can cause us to become demanding because we think we deserve better. We think we're owed more, and so we demand that we get what we're owed. We're not grateful for what we have, and so we want more. And gratitude can also cause us to play the victim. When our hearts aren't overwhelmed with gratitude, for the, when our hearts aren't overwhelmed with the spiritual blessings that God has given us so lavishly that we don't deserve, it's easy to look at our physical circumstances in our life and say, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this hardship. I've worked hard to keep my nose clean. I've, I try to do what's right. I don't, I don't deserve to be treated this way because we've forgotten about how much God has really already blessed us. And gratitude is dangerous because it stems from a prideful heart that's forgotten or even worse is ignoring 
all the undeserved blessings that God has given us. Ingratitude is spiritual dullness, perhaps even spiritual blindness. It's no wonder Paul included it on that list in 2 Timothy. Gratitude, on the other hand, is happy no matter the circumstances because it recognizes all the undeserved blessings of God. Gratitude is how you lead your heart into dependence on God because it recognizes all my blessings come from God and I desperately, desperately need him. So no matter what happens, I can be grateful, I can be happy, I can experience the joy of the Lord because look at all the ways God has been so good to my life. Gratitude looks for the ways that God is working because it wants to show thanks. Ultimately, gratitude is worship. Gratitude is not just this quick, dutiful thank you prayer before we eat each meal. And it is a command from God, but it's not just a command that we need to make sure we check off our list. Gratitude, as one writer said, is a life-giving spiritual prescription for our spiritual health. Gratitude increases our happiness in God. It draws our attention away from things that drain us of hope. It draws our attention away from things that rob us of our joy. And it fixes our gaze on what fuels our hope and fuels our courage and fuels our joy and fuels our love. If you read the book of Colossians, you'll see that gratitude is one of the things that actually keeps us in the faith. It guards us against heresy. It guards us against false teaching. Paul said in Colossians 2, 4 through 7, I'm saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. The church at Colossae had some false teaching that was creeping in. And so as Paul gets concerned, he writes to the Colossian Christians and he says, look, I want to remind you of the sufficiency of Christ so that you can guard against this false teaching. And notice what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter, or excuse me, Colossians chapter 2. He says, so then just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, we, we're familiar with this verse, continue to live in him, being rooted and built up and established in the faith just as you were taught. And we tend to just kind of stop, but that's not where the sentence stops. He says, and overflowing with gratitude. You see, a heart that's overflowing with gratitude for all that God has done for it won't fall prey to false teaching because it's totally satisfied with Christ. A heart that's overflowing with gratitude doesn't have this itch that needs to be scratched, that false teaching promises to scratch because it recognizes, man, I'm so blessed in God and I'm fully satisfied. Same principle applies in our fight to sin. Gratitude enables us to fight sin because when our heart is so full of gratitude for all that God's done for us, I don't need to look for satisfaction in lesser things. I'm fully satisfied with everything that God has so lavishly given to me. Last week we saw how fear not is one of the most repeated commands in Scripture, and this week we're going to see that another one of those often repeated commands in some form or another is give thanks, be grateful. Why? Because as we're going to see, gratitude is the key that unlocks the door to the joy of the Lord. Gratitude is the key that unlocks the door to the joy of the Lord. And Scripture tells us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. As we want to fight our battles, we recognize, I need the strength of God. I can't fight this in my own strength. And the Bible tells us that it's the joy of the Lord that is our strength. When a person is happy in Christ, it's amazing how so many other things just fall into place in the Christian life. So how do we fight to be grateful? How do we battle in gratitude? Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 103 this morning, Psalm 103. If you're our guest this morning, I just want to say thanks so much for joining us this morning. 
I'd invite everybody that's here, guests and regulars, if you want to pull out your phone, uh, open up the camera app on the front of your seat in front of you. There's a QR code that you can scan. That'll take you to fresnochurch.info. Uh, if you're our guest, there's an online connection card that you can fill out to let us know that you are with us this morning. Uh, there's also sermon notes, so you can follow along and maybe take your own notes and send those to yourselves after the service. Uh, but if you are physically able, let me encourage you to stand as we read Psalm 103. I'm going to read the whole entire psalm, and then we're going to look at portions of it throughout this morning's message. The Bible says in Psalm 103, verse number 1, David's writing, and he's talking to himself at first. He says, my soul, bless the Lord. He's telling himself, hey, soul, (laughs) hey, self, be grateful. Give thanks to God. My soul, bless the Lord and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. He's saying, hey, soul, don't be passive. Don't be halfway about this. With everything that you have, soul, give thanks. With everything that you have, bless God's holy name. Verse 2. This might take us a while to get through this whole psalm. My soul, bless the Lord, and do not forget all his benefits. Don't forget how much God has done for you. Because why? Because you want to bless him. You want to fight that ingratitude. So don't forget all his benefits. And then in verse 3, he begins to tell us those amazing, wonderful benefits. Verse 3. He forgives all your iniquities. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. He satisfies you with good things. Your new youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord execute acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He revealed his way to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. Verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. I mean, how many of you can say a big fat amen to that? Verse number 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows what we're made of, remembering that we are dust. As for man, his days are like the grass. He blooms like a flower in the field, and when the wind passes over it, it vanishes. And its place is no longer known. Verse 17, but from eternity to eternity, the Lord's faithful love is towards those who fear him. And his righteousness towards the grandchildren of those who keep his covenant, who remember to observe his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, all his angels of great strength who do his word, obedient to his command. Bless the Lord, all his armies, his servants who do his will. He's not just satisfied with blessing him with him by himself, blessing the Lord anymore. Now he's like, hey, angels, you bless the Lord too. Hey, armies of the Lord, you bless him too. Hey, all the works of God, I want us all together to bless the Lord in all the places where he rules. My soul bless the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be a people, that Fresno Church would be a group of people who intentionally lead our souls to bless you. And I pray that as we look into Psalm 103 this morning, we would be armed, we would be equipped, we would be ready, no matter what circumstances in our life, we would be armed and equipped to have hearts filled with gratitude, hearts filled, ready to give thanks for all the amazing works that you have done to your people, to those who fear God. Lord, I know how short my words fall. I am incapable of, with my words, displaying 
your glory and the riches of your salvation and your grace and your compassion and your love. So, Father, I pray that your spirit would illuminate your word this morning, that your spirit would awaken our hearts, awaken our minds, awaken our souls to the amazing glory and beauty of your love and your salvation. We ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. If gratitude is the key that unlocks the joy of the Lord, how do we live with hearts overflowing with gratitude? Well, first of all, we're going to see in this psalm that gratitude is built on humility. Gratitude is built on humility. Let's reread verses um, 13 through 16. The Bible says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. What he's reminding us by implication is that we're kind of children. <laughs> As human beings, we, we, we think we're all that in a bag of chips, but the psalmist is like, look, we're just little kids. And just like God is a good father who, ha- who has compassion on his children, God has compassion on us, his children. He reminds us that we're children. Verse number 14, the Bible says, for he knows what we are made of, remembering that we are dust. We're dirt. <laughs> he goes on, verse 15. As for a man, his days are like the grass. He blooms like a flower of the field, verse 16, but when the wind passes over it, it vanishes like a flower blowing away in the wind. (laughs) We're temporary. Then at the end of verse 16, it says, and its place is no longer known. So in these few verses, the psalmist is like, look, we're children, we're dust, we're temporary, and we're forgettable. You say, why do you bring that up? Because gratitude is built on humility. It's been said that the foundation of gratitude is the expectation of nothing. But when we're proud, when we're not living with humility, we tend to have a lot of expectations. We looked at that in our introduction. And these expectations that we allow into our life are the foundation of ingratitude. So if we want to have hearts that are grateful, if we want to have hearts that recognize how blessed we really are, we have to remember how undeserving we are. And as you can see right here in Psalm 103, As children, as dirt, as temporary, forgettable beings, we have no platform. We have no reason. We have no right to really expect anything. I mean, you read Romans chapter 1, and you realize all we really deserve is eternal condemnation. We have to be careful of this attitude that says, well, I deserve better in life. I deserve to have a good life. No, apart from Christ, we all deserve the wrath of God. And it's important that we recognize what our state is apart from Christ so that we can recognize how blessed we really are in Christ. Author John Piper said, our joy in God's mercy is intensified by the realization of how undeserving we are. And when we live with this humble state, with this humility, recognizing that, hey, before God, I am nothing. Before the omnipotent, all-powerful creator of the universe, I'm just dust. I'm like that flower that the wind can blow away and everybody forgets where it was. (laughs) When we live with that state of humility, what happens is when we look around at all the blessings of God, we're like, man, I am so grateful because I am so undeserving. And look at all the ways God has blessed me. We'll never be grateful for not living in humility. And here's the good news. Humility isn't self-loathing. It's simply acknowledging the reality of our finite position before God. And here's the beauty of it. It's that weakness. It's that that, uh, recognizing uh, that I'm nothing. 
that draws the strength of God. It's me being weak and recognizing that I am weak that draws the power of God. It's me recognizing that I am weak and that I am nothing that draws and attracts the compassion of Christ to me. Jesus says in Mark 2, when Jesus heard this, he told them, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. There's so much safety and life to be found in recognizing our nothingness because when we recognize we are weak, when we recognize we are nothing, when we recognize that we are just temporary, forgettable beings, that we were made from dirt and one day we will return to the dirt, when we recognize that, when we recognize our nothingness, we are positioning ourselves to experience the faithful love of God. I mean, look at Psalm 103, verse 16. He says, when the wind passes over, it vanishes and its place is no longer known but... We're not left in that nothingness. We're not left in that dirt. We're not left in this humble position. We're not left in our nothingness, but from eternity to eternity. The Lord's faithful love is towards those who fear him. You see, it's our nothingness, it's our weakness that compels Christ to intervene. Christ doesn't like us. When we see weakness and we see pain, when we see suffering, our human response is to turn away to not look, to ignore it so that we can be comfortable, but not our Savior. He's drawn to that weakness. He's drawn to that nothingness because he's like, now you can really see all that I have to give you. Gratitude is built on humility, but we also see that gratitude flows from experiencing God's compassion. Gratitude flows from experiencing God's compassion. Look at the first part of the psalm again. Uh, He says in verse 2, my soul, bless the Lord. Don't forget all his benefits. He's like, now let's talk about these benefits. Let's lead our souls into experiencing the love and compassion of God. Verse 3, for he forgives all your iniquities. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. Skip down to verse number 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, my page keeps blowing, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Church, when was the last time you marveled at your salvation? You just took a minute to soak in it, to bask in it, to marinate it, whatever cooking illustration, metaphor you want to come up with. When was the last time you just said, man, yes, we are nothing. We are temporary, forgettable dirt. Worse than that, we deserve condemnation. We deserve to be punished for all eternity for our sins. But God, in your love, you saved me. You didn't leave me to what I deserved. You didn't leave me to what I earned. You, in your faithful love, rescued me from the pit. You redeemed my life. Even though we are unworthy, even though we've committed treason against our creator, but God, who is rich in his mercy, because of his great love that he has for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in our trespasses. Church, you're saved by grace. 
He's also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. Church, do you realize the most real part of you right now is seated with Christ in heaven? The most real part of you is made alive. The most real part of you is eternally secure. The most real part of you is basking in the riches of his mercy so that in the coming ages, it gets even better. He might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You get to experience the kindness of God. For you are saved through grace. And this is not from yourselves. It's God's gift, not from works, lest any man should boast. Paul's like, there's no room for pride. There's really no room for ingratitude. There's no room for thinking we're great or deserving. Our amazing salvation is all of God. And it doesn't even stop there. Verse 10 says, we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Think about it. Which God has prepared ahead of time for us to do. Think about it. The almighty, omnipotent, all-powerful creator of the universe. He's so powerful, he literally can speak our universes and our galaxies into existence with a word, with a breath. He's working on you. And before the foundation of the world, he had exactly everything he wanted you to do laid out. You're his workmanship. Humility is not basking in self-loathing, like, oh, I'm just, I'm nothing, I'm dirt. It's true, we are nothing, but God has made us alive in Christ. When was the last time you just let it hit your heart that God <laughs> is for you? Romans 8.31, you can't get any more clear than that. Sometimes we're not even for ourselves, but God is for you. He's for you. When was the last time you just let it hit your heart that God took away the sting of death? We're coming through a global pandemic. Death has been on the top of mind, and understandably so, but in Christ, God's like, nah, it took away the sting of death. It has no more power over us anymore. I mean, it's understandable to be scary of death, but God took away the sting of it. When was the last time you let it hit your heart that you are being guarded by the power of God, 1 Peter 1, 5. It's easy to feel unsafe. It's easy to not feel secure with all the uncertainty in our life. But friends, as Peter reminds us, you're being guarded by the power of God. What do I have to be ungrateful for again? When was the last time you let it hit your heart that God has forgiven you of all of your sins, Colossians 1, 14? those sins that keep you up at night, those sins that you hope nobody ever finds out about, those sins that you can't even forgive yourself for, God in Christ has said, forgiven, Colossians 1.14. God has forgiven you of all your sins. He no longer holds it against you. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far removed that sin is from you. You were dead in your sins, but God made you alive. And he forgave you all your trespasses against him. Again, Colossians 2.13. When was the last time you just let it hit your heart how loved by God you are? Have you ever stopped to think about that Christ in heaven? We know Christ, he ascended from earth. He's no longer on earth. He raised in bodily form and he's in bodily form sitting in heaven right now. Have you ever stopped to think about that Christ is currently in heaven praying for you? He's praying for you right now. Hebrews 7, 24 and 25 says, but because he, Jesus, remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, 
Because he is our faithful high priest who holds that position for all of eternity, therefore he is able to save completely. Some translations say to the uttermost, completely to the end of your life. He is able to, complete, to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for you. Jesus is right now in the presence of God praying for your faithfulness, praying for your eternal security. And as this passage tells us, he doesn't grudgingly do this. It's not like he's walking into the throne of heaven, oh God, I gotta pray for Nick again. This guy, he really blew it. I mean, this guy's a hot mess. No, he lives. He always lives to make intercession for us. This is what he lives to do right now. Jesus in heaven lives to pray for you. He lives to present his completed work on the cross before the Father on your behalf. And because the completed work of Christ was the satisfactory payment of our sins, God will never reject us. So get this. God is praying for, or Jesus is praying for your eternal security. He's praying for your faithfulness right now up in heaven. And because the completed work of Christ was the satisfactory payment of our sin, God resoundingly answers yes. Those days when you feel like you can't go on, those days when you feel like, man, I don't know if I can make it, those days when you just look at your life and be like, I am such a hot mess. There's no way. Fooey on it all. Jesus up in heaven is praying for your faithfulness, and because Jesus' work on the cross was enough, God's like, yes, he can be faithful. He will be faithful. Jesus is in heaven praying for you. We are saved to the uttermost, saved completely. The uttermost moment of our lives when we stand before God, we're saved until that very moment. So on those days when you feel like you can't go on, your big brother Jesus is cheering, praying for you on your behalf, knowing you will make it because his work is enough. This is why we can be grateful. This is while David, whose life was often a hot mess itself, could say, bless the Lord, oh my soul. Look at his compassion. Look at his grace. Look at his wonder. Your sins are separated from you as far as the east is from the west. The language in verse number four says that we are crowned with God's love. It's like a garment that God puts us, a crown that he places on our head. The people of God were adorned. We are dressed with and in God's covenant loyalty and mercy. It's like a wreath of honor or esteem that would be presented to a dignitary or a king. These verses convey this sense of divine providence and peace so that, in verse 5, our youthful strength is renewed. When the truth of God's covenant love hits your heart, it literally renews us. It gets us excited. It wakes us up. It opens our eyes and our hearts begin to explode with gratitude. And we just can't help but sing. We just can't help but jump. We just can't help but rejoice. We can't help but be grateful. Why? Because look at all that God has done for me. Charles Spurgeon said, Our sins are so effectively removed that we will not ultimately suffer any loss or damage having sinned. The detriment was laid on Christ. Church, when was the last time you just let yourself sit in that? You allowed your emotions to respond to God's covenant love, his mercy, his compassion. Gratitude is built on humility because it's in that place of humility where we realize I desperately need Christ and I have nothing to bring to the table. But then it flows from experiencing God's compassion. In that humble place, God reached down and he lifts us up and he has saved us. And then thirdly, we see gratitude is the result of resting in God's reign. 
The Westminster Confession of Faith, this was written in 1646, says this. It says, God, the great creator of all things, upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Whoo! They had a way with words back then, didn't they? God is on the throne. God is in complete control of everything that happens, from the dust you see dancing in a sunbeam in the morning to the waves crashing on the shoreline to the events and circumstances happening in your life right now. God is in control. And we call God executing his sovereign control providence. Now, we have to be careful. We have to differentiate this from fate. We ain't in a Disney cartoon, okay? We're not talking about fate. Spurgeon, again, has a helpful quote here. He said, fate is this. Whatever is, must be. But there's a difference between that and providence. Providence says, whatever God ordains must be. But the wisdom of God never ordains anything without a purpose. So you see, fate just assumes things blindly move forward and there's nothing we can do about it. Providence says God is the one moving things forward for his glory and for our good. Fate is a blind thing. It's like an avalanche crushing down on a village destroying thousands. But providence is not a blind avalanche. It's a rolling river rippling down the side of a mountain followed by a minor stream till it rolls in the broad ocean of everlasting love working for the good of the human race. Fate is blind, but church, our God is not blind. He sits on his throne executing his will for his glory, which is our ultimate good. A pagan king in Daniel named Nebuchadnezzar, he said this about God's reign. In Daniel 4.34, he said, For his dominion, for God's dominion, is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. He goes on to say nobody can do anything about it. God is the one that's in control. And when things go wrong, when we see or when we experience oppression happening in our world, we know that because our good king, we know that he will execute acts of righteousness and justice for those being oppressed. That's what Psalm 103 says in verse 6. The Lord execute acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. Verse 19 of our text, Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. So we can rest And knowing that our God reigns, we can be grateful and we can find peace because we know we're on the right side of history. We can be grateful because we know our king cannot be matched by anyone. We don't have to strive for control because when we strive for control, we'll never be satisfied. Because we can never control everything, which leads to ingratitude, which opens up our hearts to a whole slew of other problems. We already talked about that. We don't have to strive for control because God is in control. And how many of you recognize God is much better at being God than we are? (laughs) We can be grateful knowing that everything happens is part of God's plan. Even when we can't understand it. Even when I don't know what's going on and I don't know how this could possibly be good and I don't know how God could allow this, all I have to do is look to the cross to see God is infinitely good. And I don't have to understand this circumstance Because I know my God is in control, and because of what he did on the cross, I know he is good. And so I can be grateful that in this moment, I may not understand what's going on, but I can be grateful because I know there is a purpose. He will work this out for his glory and for my good. Because I can rest 
in the fact that God has a plan, I can be grateful. And gratitude is the key that unlocks the door to the joy of the Lord. Uh, Corey Tinboon was a Holocaust survivor who chose gratitude over despair. She wrote a book about her experience in World War II called The Hiding Place. And in that book, she talks about her and her sister, how her and her sister, Betsy, chose gratitude. In chapter 13 of her book, the chapter is entitled Ravensbrook. At the beginning of that chapter, her and her sister, Betsy, are transferred to Ravensbrook, a particularly notorious women's extermination camp. Just let the name of that place sink in. It was an extermination camp for women in World War II. And her and her sister were transferred there. And when they got there, they almost despaired. Upon seeing the horrendous and foul state of the barracks that they had to live in, Corey asked her sister, Betsy, how can we live in such a place? The barracks that they were in were meant to hold 400, but the Nazis crammed in 1,400. Straw-covered platforms that were stacked only a few feet above each other. They they barely had enough room to crawl in and lay down. They didn't have enough room to sit up. These straw-covered platforms stacked only a few feet of each other served as their beds, and they were ridden with fleas. The entire place stank of stewage. Prisoners who were completely overcome by the horrendous conditions they were forced into would constantly curse and fight each other. I mean, imagine. You're being treated like an animal, and eventually the ladies in that camp started to act that way. And in that moment, in that moment where Corey cried out, Betsy, how can we live in such a place? Betsy remembered a verse they had read that morning from a Bible they smuggled into the camp. And the story of them just smuggling the Bible into the camp alone is this amazing act of providence. We don't have time to get into it, but go read the book. It's amazing. She remembered a verse they had read that morning, and she said, Corey, he's given us the answer. She then quoted the verse that they read that morning, and that verse said, pray constantly, give thanks in all circumstances. Betsy continued by saying, we can start right now to thank God for every single thing about this new barrack. Corey thought her sister snapped. She thought she lost her mind. Like, how can we possibly give thanks in this place? She was skeptical as she stared at her sister looking around this foul-smelling barrack. It wasn't even fit for animals. But Betsy then led her sister to begin listing all the things that they could be grateful for. Corey thanked God they had been assigned in a barrack together. But Corey was aghast when her sister began thanking God for the fleas. Like, (laughs) who in their right mind thanks God for fleas in your bed biting you at night? But Corey soon found out. Because the fleas were so bad in that particular barrack, no guards would even walk through the door. No guards, no supervisors would go in there to supervise the ladies or to interrupt their activities. None of the guards wanted to come near such a foul-smelling, flea-infested area. And as a result, Corey and Betsy were able to hold prayer meetings and read the Bible together with other prisoners. There was this one pale, pale yellow light bulb in the barrack, and they would huddle around that, reading the scripture, having prayer meetings, and it grew into this larger group of women who were just so hungry for a ray of hope. And it's amazing. Corey talks about how in that place they had such unity among all different types of people who would worship God. I mean, Catholics are reciting 
Luke 1 in Latin. She said Lutherans would be quietly singing a hymn. Eastern Orthodox women would begin quietly doing their chants. Corey and Betsy would then read a portion of the Bible, and they said they would listen as after they read that portion of the Bible, it would get translated up and down the aisles in French and Polish and Russian and Czech and Dutch. Corey said it was like a little taste of heaven. The overall attitude of the barrack began to change too. Where there was once anger and fighting, there was now kindness and support. In a real sense, they experienced revival in an extermination camp. And it was all made possible by one woman's stubborn determination to be grateful in the middle of the most inhumane circumstances in history. You see, gratitude is the key that unlocks the joy of the Lord. And as we have seen here in Psalm 103, we have much to fight off ingratitude with. Pastor and writer Tony Evans said, uh, this Psalms of Psalm 103, this Psalm's review of God's faithfulness, God's faithfulness towards his people causes David to erupt like a volcano of praise. May the same be true for all believers. So church, as we conclude this morning, I want us to think, I want us to meditate on God's faithfulness, on his love, on his compassion, and then like David, erupt like a volcano of praise. So here's our takeaway. Simply intentionally look for and celebrate the blessings of God in your life. Sit with his love. Sit with his grace. Sit with his compassion. Remind yourself of who you were, but don't stay there. Look at where God has saved you. Look at where God has saved you from. Intentionally look for and celebrate the blessings of God in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the countless and eternal ways that you have blessed us. And Lord, I pray that in these next few moments, we, like David, would intentionally lead our hearts to bless the Lord. And then like he ends the psalm with, Lord, that we wouldn't be happy to just sit silently in our own gratitude, but that we as a church would encourage each other to stand and to praise and to worship and together bless the Lord because of all the many, many ways you have been good to us. We ask this in your name. Amen.